Well, as we um, jump into today, uh, we're going to be looking at a really uh, kind of a common misconception, I think, uh, that a lot of us uh, maybe have seen over the years in our times of church or growing up, especially for those of you who might have grown up in a Christian home. Uh, there is a common misconception that a simple profession of faith, um, just a professing of your belief, your faith in Jesus, that that means, if you just simply profess, I'm a Christian, I believe in Jesus, that means that you are definitely, absolutely a born-again disciple of Christ. That's a pretty common misconception. But a mere profession of faith, just saying, I believe, does not equal a possession of faith. Professing faith is one thing, but possessing faith is a whole other matter. My whole life, up until age 18, I would have told you for sure, I would have told you, and I would have been adamant about it, that I was a Christian. I would have said that, I would have agreed to that, I would have told you I believe in Jesus. But though I professed that faith, I certainly did not possess that faith at all, at all. That faith was not in my heart at all. Uh, it was somewhere in my mind, kind of cerebrally, but it was not something that was in my heart. And as we look at the scriptures today, we're in John chapter 8, verses uh, 31. We'll be going to 46 today. We're going to see Jesus have this kind of interaction with the Jews here. Uh, if you remember that last week in verse 30, we saw that at the very end of the section, it says, many that heard him believed but then now in 31, going to 46, we're going to see Jesus' interaction with these very Jews that say, we believe. And the difference between kind of a, a lowercase b, believe, and kind of an uppercase b, believe. There's a lot of things that I believe in, right? I, I, I believe in the devil. I believe he exists, but I don't, capital B, believe in him, like put my trust and my faith in him. Right? So there's like kind of this lowercase b, I believe certain facts, certain things. And that's how I was from up until age 18. I believed in lowercase b that Jesus is God, he's real, that I was a Christian, but there was no capital B belief that was in my heart. It wasn't a belief that I possessed. I just merely professed it, but did not possess it. And we're going to be seeing that as we go into John 8, 31 through 46. So allow me to pray and Thank the Lord again just for um, bringing us out here, giving us uh, this, this courtyard to meet in uh, for good weather today, to be able to gather together uh, and worship the Lord. Father, as we are here this morning, we again thank you for um, just a morning for us to gather, to see each other's faces, to sing with each other, to hear your word, to... Um, hopefully have your word find a home in our hearts, a place to, to settle into, to go to work. We don't want to just come here and have your word just fill our minds, give us knowledge, give us information, but we want your word to go to work in our hearts, to live there and dwell there and to work in us, to change us, to sanctify us. We want to look back in a few weeks or a few months or a year, two years, and look back and see how your word was active in our lives and changed us. This is what we need. It's what we desire. So Holy Spirit, please, by your mercy and grace, lead us into this truth today. 
that it would find a home in our hearts, a place to dwell. We thank you and we love you in Jesus' name. Amen. So John chapter 8, verse 31, it says, Jesus said to the Jews who had believed him from the previous section, these ones that had believed in him, this is what he says to these Jews. If you abide in my word, you are truly my disciples and you will know the truth and the truth will set you free. But then they answered him, we're the offspring of Abraham. We've never been enslaved to anyone. How is it that you say to us, you will become free? Jesus answered them, truly, truly, I say to you, everyone who practices sin is a slave to sin. The slave does not remain in the house forever, but the son, the son remains forever. If the son sets you free, you will be free indeed. I know that you're the offspring of Abraham, yet you seek to kill me because my word finds no place in you. I speak of what I've seen with my father and you do what you have heard from your father. We'll stop here for now, but we'll be going through 46. And as I mentioned, verse 30 told us that many of these Jews had believed. But here in this next section, we have this sobering reality that not all who believe, with a lowercase b, believe, not everyone actually, capital B, believes. They profess it. They profess a belief, but they do not possess a belief. Other parts in the scripture, we know the, the, the verses where it says that Jesus says, not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, we cast out demons in your name. We did all these amazing things. These aren't just run-of-the-mill cultural believers in this time. These people are going around casting out demons in the name of Jesus. But Jesus says, just because you're doing some, some good things doesn't mean that you're actually my disciple, that you hold me in your heart. He says, not everyone who says, Lord, Lord, is my disciple. I'll look at them and say, I don't know you. Outward things are not enough. On the other hand, Jesus says, but if you abide in my word, you are truly my disciples and you'll know the truth and the truth will set you free. But to truly be set free, to be truly born again, to be saved, to have a, a, a right confidence in our salvation, to have a right and true confidence in our faith, we must possess what we profess. Whatever we say we have or think, we have to actually possess that in our hearts, not just a mere confession of faith. Now, these Jews think that they possess right standing before God because of their outer selves. These Jews depended on their family history, their lineage. They hear Jesus say, the truth will set you free. And they think, well, wait a minute. Are you saying we're not free? How dare you say that? How dare you judge me like that? What do you mean we need to be set free? We're, our, our father is Abraham. We're, we're Jews. We're already good. Our parents were Jews. I was raised a Jew. And we often do quite similarly, just kind of in our own way. We think maybe because we were raised in a Christian home or a nation that had at some point Christian values. We think that because our parents are Christians, we know some Bible verses. We can answer all the right questions. We're, we're pretty good people. Go to church every once in a while. For the most part, we, 
pretty much act like Christians, so we must be good. We assume that just since we profess this, therefore we are. We identify as Christians. Therefore, we are Christians. But we have to truly possess what we profess. I've said this before, um, something along these lines, that I can profess to you all day long that I'm Asian or Colombian uh, or any other ethnicity, but that's just not true. I can't just say that I'm one of those things because I'm not. I have to possess the very thing that I profess. Now, I could even profess the, the, and have knowledge of the culture. I could maybe even know the language of whatever other ethnicity I claim to be. I can have a lot of knowledge of what it is I, I profess. I can tell you all the ins and outs, the, the cultural history. I can dress the part, everything. But to truly actually be that, that claim, I have to actually possess that. But for me, as, as truly actually an Irish American, for me to actually be Asian or Colombian or whatever, I would somehow have to be born again as that ethnicity. Somehow I'd have to figure out a way as an Irish American to be born again and be born as an Asian American or Colombian American or whatever. I can't just profess it. Something real has to actually happen for me to possess that claim. In Jeremiah 13, 23, it says, can an Ethiopian change his skin? That's the same kind of analogy. Can an Irish American become an Asian American? Can an Ethiopian change his skin or a leopard change his spots? Kids, let me, let me ask you guys. Do you think if, if, a, if a leopard just wanted to have different spots, do you think that leopard could do that? No, right? That's impossible. A leopard can't just think to himself, I want to look like a tiger today. Even if, the, even if the leopard really, really wanted that, the leopard can't become a tiger. It's, it's born with spots. So obviously the answer to this question that Jeremiah asked, can an Ethiopian change his skin or a leopard his spots? Actually, this is the Lord speaking through Jeremiah. So the Lord's asking this question. The answer is no. And then the Lord says, so neither can you do good who are accustomed to doing evil. You're born as sinners, if an, if an Ethiopian can't change his skin just because he says he wants to, or if a leopard can't just magically change his spots, why do you as a sinner think that all of a sudden you can just be totally good, acceptable to God? You're totally fine. Nothing's wrong with me now. No, that's, that's illogical thinking. These Jews think they're automatically fine because they were born as Jews and professed to be Jews. And though it is true that they are born Jewish, but... Not only have they been born Jewish, they've been born as sinful and spiritually dead Jews. Romans chapter two, Paul says this, no one is a Jew who is merely one outwardly. And for us, we can think through this. No one is a Christian who's just one on the outside. No one's just a uh, leopard unless you're actually a leopard on the inside. You can't claim to be a tiger unless you're a tiger on the inside. So no one's a Jew who's merely one outwardly, nor is circumcision outward and physical, but a Jew is one inwardly. And circumcision is a matter of the heart. So even the, the rituals we do, going to church, reading the Bible, those things have to be a matter of the heart, not just things we do outwardly. 
These are things that are done inwardly by the Spirit, not by the letter, meaning by the things we do, kind of by the law. His praise, the true Jew, the true Christian's praise is not from man, but from God. So a true Christian is one who's not one outwardly, but inwardly, something only the Spirit can do, not just a profession. You see, a, a leopard is, in a sense, enslaved, so to speak, to be a spotted big cat. Leopard's enslaved to that. He's got no way out of it. He is a slave to his spots because he can't just will that he changes that. The spots prove that he's a leopard. And so he is chained, so to speak, to his spots. James says in chapter two of his letter, he says, someone will say to me, you have faith and I have works. But James says, show me your faith, your profession, so to speak. Show me your profession of faith apart from your works. In other words, show me your profession without any possession. But instead, what I'm gonna do, I'm gonna show you my faith by my works. I'm gonna prove my profession by displaying the possession of it in my heart, the way that I live, the way I act, the way I think, the way I am. That's gonna be my proof. He says, you believe, lowercase b, that God is one. He says, nice job, you do well. Give yourself a round of applause. Pat yourself in the back. Guess what? Even demons believe. Lowercase b, belief, just a simple profession. You have faith, but no works. Profession, but no possession. Nice job. The demons do too. And they actually shudder in fear. Do you want to be shown, you foolish person, that faith, apart from works, is useless. See, a leopard can say, I'm a tiger. A person can say, I'm a Christian. But James says, I'll prove I'm a Christian by my actions. By my actions, by my heart and what flows out of my heart. Even the profession of faith, I believe in God. James says, oh, that's nice, but what's your point? Profession of faith alone, James says, just saying you believe, calling yourself a Christian, that alone is useless, James says. So what? The demons say the same thing. He says, do you want to be shown, you foolish person, that faith apart from works is useless? I'm enslaved, so to speak, to being an Irish American. I can't, I can't change that. I'm, I'm subjected to that. I can't change that. And I don't mean that negatively at all. I mean that I'm bound and chained to certain things in my life. I'm subjected to it. I have no ability, nor do I have a right to change it. Nothing I can do can change my ethnicity, the color of my skin, or the spots on a leopard. No simple profession can change this. I, I have to be this. And a leopard must be a leopard. And as Jeremiah says, and as Jesus is saying, we are born as sinners, so we are enslaved to be sinners. We can't get out of that. It's like you can't change your skin can't change your spots. You can't change the fact that you've been born into the slavery of sin. It's in our nature. We're bound to sin. This is bad news. The Jews think that they're already free. They already think we're good. And there's a lot of debate over free will and what it is and what we have. And while it's completely true that we are absolutely free moral agents, we make meaningful decisions we're responsible for our decisions, our actions. We make real choices each and every day. But we also have 
limitations, limits that the Jews themselves can't see. For example, the leopard with his spots, he's, he's limited. He can make all of his choices throughout his day, what he wants to do, how fast he wants to run, what he wants to eat. He has, very, he has all the freedom in the world, except he can't change his spots. So his freedom is limited. And we are not born free from sin. We're born into the slavery of sin. And think of this, you know, your coworkers, your family, your family that you're going to be seeing over the holidays, your, your kids, your kids' friends, we're all born into the slavery of sin. And the Jews argue, though, we don't need to be freed. We're, we're already free. But look again in verse 33 here. We're the offspring of Abraham. And we've never been enslaved to anyone. How is it that you say you'll become free? And Jesus answered them, truly, truly, I say to you, everyone who practices sin is a slave to sin. So verse 33 again. We're the offspring of Abraham, and we've never been enslaved to anyone. How is it that you say you'll become free? Jesus answered them, truly, truly, I say to you, everyone who practices sin is a slave to sin. The slave doesn't remain in the house forever, but the son remains forever. So the slave isn't a true son of the father. He's just a slave. But the son was born in the house, born to the family. He remains forever. The slave does not. So if the son, the capital S son, sets you free, you'll be free indeed. Now this picture of slavery gives us very vivid imagery. A slave, of course, is free also to make decisions. But the slave has limitations as well, just like the leopard. There's exterior forces that limit a slave's freedom. Likewise, every single one of us, we're all born free in the sense of making our own decisions, making our own choices. But just as the person born into physical slavery is destined to be limited by slavery, the person born in sin, which is also all of us, will be limited by the bondage and the chains of the slavery of sin. So yeah, we're, we're free in one sense, but we're also very limited in our freedom in another sense because we're born into the slavery of sin. And Jesus here is declaring to them that he has come to set them free from the slavery of sin. This is what he's telling them. He's giving them good news, but they push back. We don't need this. We're fine. We're already free. But the proof that they're bound is that they're, even though they listen with their ears, they hear this. Maybe even they believe something in their mind, kind of lowercase b, but they don't hear with faith or believe capital B in their hearts. His word does not find a home in their hearts. Because even though they claim that they're of the offspring of Abraham and therefore that God is their father, the evidence proves otherwise. Look in 37 again. I know that you're the offspring of Abraham. I know that. But you seek to kill me because my words find no place in you. I speak of what I've seen with my father and you do what you've heard from your father. They answered him, Abraham's our father. Jesus said to them, if you were Abraham's children, you'd be doing the works Abraham did. But now you seek to kill me, a man who has told you the truth that I heard from God. That's not what Abraham did. That's not what your father did. You're doing the works your father did, your true father, which he's going to reveal to them in a second. And they said to him, we were not born of sexual morality. We have one father, even God. Now, this is most likely a dig at Jesus's parentage. They're kind of digging at him. They know that he was born out of wedlock. 
Joseph and Mary. So they're trying to discredit him. Who are you? We weren't born out of, out of wedlock like you were, born out of sexual morality. And so here's where Jesus is gonna bring out the big guns. Firstly, he's gonna push back on their claim of him being born of sexual immorality. He's gonna make it plainly known, know that God actually is my father. But he doesn't even stop there. Look what he says in verse 42. Jesus said to them, if God were your father, you would love me. For I came not from Joseph and Mary, but I came from God and I am here. I came not on my own accord, but he, God the Father, sent me. Why don't you understand what I say? You wanna know why you don't understand what I'm saying? It's because you can't even bear my word. You are of your father, the devil. The devil. Abraham's not your father like you claim. You can profess that all day long, but your father's the devil. And your will is to do your father's desires, the devil's desires. Your father, the devil, he was a murderer from the beginning and he doesn't stand in the truth because there's no truth in him. When he lies, he speaks out of his own character for he's a liar and the father of lies. But because I tell the truth, you don't believe me. Which one of you convicts me of sin? If I tell the truth, why do you not believe me? Whoever is of God, hears the words of God. The reason why you don't hear them is because you are not of God. Even though you profess that, you don't possess this. Jesus is saying, you don't understand me. You don't believe me because your father is the devil and you're against me. Now, church, this is, this is a hard one for us to hear, but it's important for us to understand that we are not born as children of God. We're born as slaves to sin. And as Jesus said before, the slave does not remain forever. The son does, but we're not born as sons and daughters of God, children of God. It's not true according to the Bible. When people say things like, oh, we're all God's children, that's not what the Bible actually says. I know sentimentally it sounds great, but we can't form our beliefs on just what feels good or what's sentimental, what sounds good. We have to base it on truth, on God's word. And though God's word does say that it's true that we're all God's creation, that's true. We're all made in the image of God, and that is true and very important for us to know. We've all been fearfully and wonderfully made. All of that's true. Even as image bearers though, and as his creation, all of us have gone astray. We've all chosen sin. We've all gone our own way. And as free moral agents, we've all chosen sin. We've all cho chosen to rebel against God. We've willfully divorced ourselves, so to speak, by sinning against him separating ourselves from him, choosing to live independently from him, to just live in pride and arrogance and just insisting on our own way. And we've chosen that because we are born as slaves to sin. We're stuck in a prison cell from birth. The Bible actually calls us, before we come to know him, the Bible calls us in Ephesians 2, we're actually children of wrath, sons of disobedience. And even here, Jesus says, children of the devil. I know that sounds so harsh, even insultingly harsh, but only by hearing and knowing the truth first, the truth that's even offensive, truth that is hurtful, only by first hearing that can we truly have those first steps towards becoming actually free. If we don't think there's a problem, then what do you need to be free from? That's the Jews' problem. We don't, we don't need freedom. What are you talking about? 
They don't, they don't believe that they've been born that way. They've been born already good as Abraham's kids. So they have no need for salvation. We have to first see and believe the bad news. Though it pushes against the, the philosophy of the world, the sentimentality of the world. But imagine, imagine if I'm, I'm, I'm your doctor and I give you horrible news. You have an aggressive disease, aggressive form of cancer. You can be angry at me for being the bearer of such bad news, for insisting that you're sick. I feel like I'm just kind of judging you, judging your health, telling you that you have a problem that you can't fix on your own, but a good doctor is gonna be honest with you, give you the bad news for the purpose, not just to shame you, not just to make you mad, but so that you can actually be pointed towards healing, towards a solution, so you can come to grips with the reality of your condition so that you can actually have a way towards a solution. And Jesus didn't just come to the earth to brush the bad news under the rug or pretend like everything's fine. He came to bring the good news, but you can't profess and possess the good news if you don't know, much less believe that there is first bad news. We have to start there. Honesty and truth spoken in love is what we all need. It's what the words of the, your loved ones need to hear. It's what I need. A few things that Jesus points out here, things that prevent these folks from truly believing. Look at verse 37. I know that you are offspring of Abraham. I know that. But you seek to kill me, and here's why. Because my words find no place in you. This phrase here that finds no place is just a single word for the word holds or holding. It's only used in two other places in the Gospel of John. The first one we already saw in John 2, talking about water vessels that held 20 gallons of water. So picture this, a, a vessel that holds water. That's the kind of holding we're talking about. And then also later in John, if you know the verse where it says that if, if, if all the words of Jesus were written down, all the books in the world and all the libraries of the world couldn't contain all of his words, that word contains. So now you picture books that hold words. This is what we're talking about here. Jesus is saying that his words are not being held, not contained, not being held in their hearts. His words, like the water in these vessels or words in books, they don't have a home. Imagine the water with no vessel. It's just, it's all over the place. It just seeps into the ground. He's saying, your heart doesn't hold my word like a water vessel or like books hold words. My word has not found a home in your heart, a, a place of uh, to be safely kept in and contained, a place to dwell in. And this is a phrase you'll hear me say a lot in our prayers as we open. I said it this morning too. I say it most mornings or most Sundays. I say, Holy Spirit, lead us into truth. But you'll hear me say a lot and often, we pray that your word would find a home in our hearts. That's a constant part of my, my prayers for, for us as a church, for us when we hear God's word being preached that his words would go from his mouth into our ears. Hopefully, not just landing only in our minds, but into our hearts. But here these Jews, his words have gone in their minds. They believe with the lowercase b, but his, their hearts do not hold his words. Matthew 15, verse 7, he speaks to some Pharisees. He says, you hypocrites, 
Isaiah did a good job prophesying of you when he said, these people honor me with their lips, but their heart is far from me. We can say all the good things we want with our mouth, but our hearts can be far from him. Their faith is, is phony. Paul says to Timothy in 2 Timothy chapter 3, he's speaking of these kinds of people who have this phoniness about them. He says, they have the appearance of godliness. They look, they look godly. They look godly, they act godly, but they deny its power. They deny the actual power of godliness. Avoid such people. And in verse 7, he says, these kind of people are always learning always filling their minds with more information, more theology, more knowledge, but they're never able to arrive at a knowledge of the truth. Filling their minds. They look good. They sound good. They know the words. They have the, the profession of their faith, but they never arrive at a knowledge, a deep, intimate knowledge of the truth, the kind of knowledge that lives in their hearts. They learn, 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 but the, this learning never permeates their hearts. It fills their minds, but doesn't change their hearts. It's not enough for us to have a lowercase b belief, to read with our eyes, hear with our ears, and believe in our minds that Jesus is Lord and that his word even is true. That's not enough. No, God's word must find a home in our hearts. Our hearts have to be able to carry his word like a vessel holding water so that we can abide in his word, which is what Jesus said, and to have his word abide and dwell in us. And then also he says this about why they don't understand in verse 43. Why do you not understand what I say? It's because you can't bear to hear my word. Their hearts can't hold his word, first of all, because they can't even stand to hear his word. They push back. You don't judge us, right? You, you hear certain things that people might confront you in or, or call to your attention and you can't even bear to hear it. You're offended that someone might insist on something or say something to you. Your pride, your ego just goes up. You can't even bear it. You can't stomach it, much less keep it down and hold it in your heart. Paul says to the Corinthians in 1 Corinthians chapter 2, verse 14, the natural person, so the, born, the person just born naturally, a human being, doesn't accept the things of the Spirit of God because those things are just folly to him. It's just foolish. Right? You have maybe some non-believing friends, family, that just think that you're, you believe in, it's just foolishness. So these things are foolishness to him. And that person is not able to understand them because they are, these things are spiritually discerned. If you scoff at the things that God's word says or teaches, maybe you find it a joke, maybe too over the top, too old fashioned, too judgmental, it might be time to really examine whether or not you really are truly a born again disciple of Jesus Christ. Because to be true disciples, we need to first be born again, made alive on the inside. Our leopard spots need to change. As we go from being born into the slavery of sin, which is all of us, and then being born anew, born again as sons and daughters who've been set free by the ransom paid by Jesus Christ. As we awaken from that slumber, the light of the world shines into our darkened hearts. We're born anew, not just simply as a natural person, but now as a spiritual person. And because of the spiritual birth into the light now, we can not only bear the truth or, and stomach the truth, but now it finds a home in our hearts. And now we actually find ourselves even wanting this truth. Our hearts can now contain that truth, and now that truth can abide in us. 
It's going back to verse 31. If you abide in my word, Jesus says, you are truly my disciples and you'll know the truth and the truth will set you free. To abide in his word goes beyond it just being contained. We want the word to be contained in our hearts. But being contained is first necessary. But to abide in it means not just to hold on to it, but also to apprehend it, to hold tightly to it, to live in it, to have God's word live in us and lead us. His word is the thing that now leads us. Even when we don't like something in the word, like maybe a doctor's diagnosis, we, we still believe it to be true. We don't like what the doctor says, but we trust him. We trust God's wisdom and his ways, that his ways are greater than ours. It's like a child trusting his or her parents. So the child might disagree with his parents, not understand the decision being made, but they choose to trust. We have to do the same. And I should remind you too that the difference between, and the, the gap between a four-year-old and a 35-year-old is much closer than the gap between you and God, right? So we, we kind of think, we, we picture a four-year-old how, four-year-old just doesn't understand the things of the world and what it means to be an adult. And we kind of think, oh, that's just so cute or so maybe kind of irritating sometimes because they just don't trust mom and dad. But we're a lot closer to a four-year-old than we are to God. And yet we push back on God's ways. We like sermons that teach what we feel in the moment. Sermons that prop us up and validate what we already believe. We want the Bible to validate what we already think or feel about certain things. We want the Bible to affirm what we've already decided is truth. We don't like the idea of the Bible challenging something we believe or a sermon challenging something we believe. And like these self-righteous Jews, too often we listen or read whether it's the sermon or the words of Jesus or something we read in the Bible, we listen in order to argue and find loopholes rather than listen to actually understand and to capital B, believe. Oftentimes we listen or read in a way to interpret something to fit us rather than to learn something so that we can abide in it. But for a believer, we humbly should aim to learn and understand as we go to God's word, we go there to trust in him. And as God's word fills us, our hearts contain his word. We choose to be proactive in how we abide in it. We ask the Lord to have that very word go work, to work in us and change our hearts. To bring the lamp of God's word, the light of the world into our hearts. That it would sanctify us, change us, and dwell in us richly. That we would possess what we profess we would possess what we profess. Church, the Lord is light. He's the light of the world, and his word contains that light. His word is the lamp to your feet. His word is like that dimmer switch we talked about last week that slowly brings up the light in your heart, your mind, your life. He does this firstly to show you the bad news, to show you the, the dirt and the grime, the dust that's in your heart that's already there. You didn't know it was there. You've been avoiding. Didn't think you need any freedom from it. Think everything's fine. But he also does this not just to show you your faults, but so that you can actually abide in his word and let the word now go to work in your heart, changing and cleaning the mess inside of you. Going back to verse 34. Truly, truly, 
I say to you, everyone who practices sin is a slave to sin. The slave doesn't remain in the house forever, but the son remains forever. So if the son sets you free, you'll be free indeed. If you've been born again, you are free from sin. He has opened the prison door and set you free. He's broken your chains of sin. Whatever bondage you feel about sin that you're struggling with, you need to know that those chains have been broken. You might still be walking in it, but you don't have to because you're a son, you're a daughter now. You're not a slave to that sin any longer. If the son has set you free, you are free indeed. You might not feel free, but you are free. You're just not walking out and trusting in God's ways and word to walk in that freedom. If you're still feeling enslaved, if you're still living in the prison cell of sin, even though the door has been opened, something needs to change. Romans chapter six, verse six says, we know that our old self was crucified with him. The old Joby was crucified with Christ. And here's why, in order that the body of sin might be brought to nothing so that we would no longer be enslaved to sin. For one who has died, old Joby's died, one who's died has been set free from sin. If you've been born again, you've been set free from sin. You are no longer that slave. Romans 8, verse 15, you didn't receive the spirit of slavery to fall back into fear. You've been set free, so, so don't go become a slave again. But you've received the spirit of adoption as sons by whom we cry, Abba, Father. The spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God. And as Jesus says, the children remain in the house forever. The slave does not, but you're not a slave any longer if you've been born again. You are, you've been set free from your sin. If you've been born again, and if you're still living in some hidden sin, if you're still obeying your sin, if you're living in unrepentant sin, ask yourself, why do I still obey sin? What do you think you, why, what do you think you owe your sin? Why do you keep doing what your sin is calling you to do? What do you owe your sin? Your father is no longer the devil. You owe him nothing. You have a new master. You have a new father. You've been born again. Why do you keep giving to your sin? You owe your sin nothing, nothing at all. Sin is no longer your master. You've been set free. You can say, you know, as you did when you were kids, you're not the boss of me, right? That's what we say to our sin. You are not the boss of me. You can't force me to do this. Don't believe the lie that you cannot overcome your sin. That is a lie from the bed of hell that your old father would love for you to believe. You have the power through Christ to conquer sin. We just sang the song, we're more than conquerors through him. Don't believe that lie that you're stuck in whatever it is you feel like you're stuck in because verse 36 says, if the son has set you free, you will be free indeed. And then just a couple verses back in Romans, in verse 13, chapter eight, if you live according to the flesh, you will die, but if by the Spirit you put to death the deeds of the body, you will live. As John Owen famously said, be killing sin or sin will be killing you. I'd like to close with this. this is, you can fall on your notes at the bottom there. Just a few things that I would just like to leave you guys with this week in your fight for freedom. Now keep in mind, you don't do these things to get freedom. 
okay? You, de- you do these things to walk in the freedom that you already have, right? So this isn't a list of things to do to get free. No, everything has already been done to set you free. That part's done. Okay, the prison cell has been opened, right? You don't have to do these things to open the cell. There's nothing you can do to open the cell. Only Christ can do that. And if you're born again, he's done that. So these aren't things to do to get free. These things are due to walk in the freedom that is already yours, already been purchased for you by Christ. So the first thing we can do, we can draw close to the light, having an honest approach to God's word, an honest approach with people in your life who could speak into you and tell you things that maybe you don't want to hear like a doctor and having an honest approach and letting that dimmer switch come up in your life. Be open to see sin that you don't think is there. Be open. People you love and trust, be open. We also pray that God's word would find a place in our heart. Make that your prayer. As you hear God's word, as you maybe sing worship songs throughout the week, say, God, I want want the words of the song that I'm singing right now. I want this time in the word. I I want this to find a home in my heart, not just be a a melody I like to sing or whatever, but that it would find a home in our, our hearts. We also confess sin that the indwelling word shows us. We confess Firstly, to God, but we also take that step of faith and allow light into our hearts and into the relationships in our lives and we confess sin to one another. We also pray for strength to abide in his word. Help me, Holy Spirit, to abide and be led by your word, that your word would be the lamp to my feet. And abiding means having a a long-term approach, like, like physically working out or practicing an instrument or working hard at a sport, patiently enduring, failing forward, you're going to make mistakes. You're going to fail. Sometimes you won't abide in the word. We have to have a long-term view of this. Know and believe that if you are born again, you will grow. You will change. The word is dwelling in your hearts. The word will work in your hearts. It might not work in the moment you want it to. You might not see change in a day or two, but over the long haul, as you abide in the word, you will see change if you've been born again. And if you haven't grown for a very long time, if nothing seems like it's going on inside you, if you have no, no plans to have God's word lead you, you don't really have this desire to abide in his word, I don't want you to be fooled. I want you to be cautious. I want you to be open to truth. I want you to consider that quite possibly, as Jesus says, if you don't abide in his word, you might not be his disciple. You might have a lowercase b belief. I just, I don't want you to be fooled. Now, it doesn't mean you won't struggle, you know, or, or have these kind of moments, but I'm just saying if, if it's been a while, it's been a long time, and you have no desire, then you need to really take an honest look and talk to people that you trust. Because an honest approach is the only way out of it. It's the only way to have the freedom from the state that you are possibly already in. If you want real freedom, we have to have this honest approach in God's word and with the people around us. If we want to abide in his word and have the freedom that Christ has already purchased for us. So I'd like to pray and ask the Lord again that these words would find a home in our hearts. That he'd help us to abide in his word. That his word would dwell richly in us. That his word would go to work in us, changing us and sanctifying us. Heavenly Father, we want to come to you, firstly, thanking you that 
as your sons and daughters, we can call you father. We are no longer sons or daughters of disobedience or children of wrath. We're no longer slaves to sin, but we're sons and daughters. We've been adopted. We thank you that you've done this for us through the work of your son, that he has set us free, that he's opened up that prison. He's opened up the, the locks. He's undone the, the chains, the handcuffs. And we can walk free. We can walk in the freedom that your son has purchased for us. And we are asking God that you would help us to abide in your word that we would allow your light to shine into our hearts, that we would be open and honest and vulnerable and humble, willing to see new areas of our life that we might be deceived or in sin or holding back or hiding our stubbornness, our pride, our, our, our ego, our, all these different things. We want to abide. We want to hold your, heart, uh, your word in our hearts. So help us, Lord. Holy Spirit, help us. Each and every day, we want to hold your word in our hearts that it would dwell richly within us, changing us and conforming us more and more to the image of Jesus Christ. Thank you, Lord. Thank you for your grace and your patience towards us. Thank you that your son has set us free. Help us go this week into the celebration of, of Thanksgiving. Help us go with just an overflowing joy and gratefulness for what you've done for us. We thank you, Lord. We love you so much. We worship you. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.